Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, gang, Mike and Mark with you, along with the co creator of our podcast, longtime agent Barry Axelrod. And folks, it's all in the family today. Mark, our guest, Mark Grace, has been represented by Barry since 1989. Gracie's had a fantastic career, as most of you know, more hits and more doubles than any player during the entire decade of the 90s. A lot of guys on that list, folks, including to people like Tony Gwynn, Craig Biggio, Rafi Palmero, unbelievable run. And you think about it, Mike, our, our guest today, Gracie, uh, my vision is always that visitor in Wrigley Field when you're on the first base side and he's holding the runner on. It almost felt like he was in our uniform. It, it was that close. And for me, coming into the game, it was so cool to do that because we knew number 17 was going to be at first base. He was going to throw out some line drives, and it was going to be entertaining, to say the least. And we're happy to have Mark Grace on with us. Hi, guys. Thank you very much. You guys are good for my ego. And <laughs> I, was, I probably was talking to you, to, to you and your teammates more than I was talking to Sandberg, who was on the other side of me. So, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, you guys were closer to me than the second baseman. So, yeah, it was uh, – we always had a good time, didn't we? We did. Buddy, we are so glad that you're able to make a little bit of time for us. We know this is a, a crazy time. Hope everybody Oh, yeah, knows. yeah. I'm really, really busy. Yeah. <laughs> I, my, uh, my big decision of the day was uh, do I wear the white socks or the black socks? That's, uh, that's, my, that's my big choice of the day right there. What'd you go with? I went with black. You want to see? No. No, you should. It's always a solid choice. <laughs> let's, take you, let's take you for a, a little journey, if you would. So many high points in your career and so many wonderful moments, and we're going to get to all of them. Uh, but we'd like to go back to your major league beginning. Okay. We know you drafted in 1985, but I want to take you to 1988, because by the time 88 rolls around, you already had a few really good minor league seasons. You've been to big league camp, but you hadn't yet cracked the big league roster. So when you finally do get that call in May of 88, were you expecting it at that time? No, not really. Uh, and thank you for the for the compliments. Yeah, I was a I was a really good minor league player. <laughs> Man, you should have seen me in the minor leagues. Boy, I was something special. Um, but I had a couple of good years. Uh, uh, thank you. And and I was in Des Moines, Iowa, in Triple A for the Chicago Cubs. And uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning. And this is back before cell phones and all that. My my landline rings. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Who the, who the hell's calling me at two in the morning? And I answered it and it was uh, my AAA manager. His name was Pete McCannon, who went on to manage in the big leagues for a couple of years with Pittsburgh and, uh, and maybe Philadelphia. But anyway, Pete McCannon calls me and Pete was kind of a, kind of a prankster, kind of a jokester, a fun guy. And he's, he's, he's like, he's like, Gracie, it's Pete. And I'm like, what do you want? And he's like, well, uh, I want to say congratulations. You're going to the big leagues. Ah, ha, ha, Pete. And I hung up the phone on him. And 20 seconds later, the phone rings again. And, and he's like, Gracie, I'm, I'm serious. You're, you're, I want to congratulate you and tell you you're going to the big leagues. And your flight leaves Des Moines at 6 a.m. to because to, the team's out in San Diego. And I'm like, 
I, I, I think I, you know, I said, oh God, uh, you know, holy Moses, except I didn't say Moses. And uh, I, I had to get, you know, I didn't go back to sleep. I, I stayed awake, uh, packed what few things I had and went to the airport and it was a 6 a.m. flight out of, uh, out of Des Moines. And I had to connect through Chicago. So I had to fly from, so I had to fly east to lay over in Chicago at O'Hare and then fly all the way out to uh, San Diego to meet the team that was playing that night against the Padres. And Grace, Gracie, who'd you call when you, when you had that, that uh, moment? Uh, I called, I called my, my mother and father, my, my dad was pissed at me for calling him that early in the morning. And uh, I said, yeah, but dad, you know, he's like, nah, nah, nah. You know, anyway, it was a very short call. And mom, of course, uh, wanted to, wanted to talk the whole time. So uh, it was, just, that was, the, that was the only phone calls that, that I made anybody else. Uh, I know I wasn't with Barry at the time, but uh, I know Barry would have yelled at me if I called him that time in the morning. But um, so, so I, Got on the plane, flew to O'Hare, had a couple hour layover, got, uh, flew out to San Diego and, you know, growing up in Orange County, I called, uh, once, once I got there, I called some guys, you know, that I grew up with and I went to San Diego state. So once, once it got, uh, you know, about, I said, Hey man, I'm, I'm out here. And I left, I ended up leaving about eight tickets for, for some people, but, but I, I got to the ballpark. Now, mind you, the game's at, game's at seven o'clock. I get to the ballpark at about 4.30. And, you know, it took a little while to get there. I got there, and uh, the team was just about to go take batting practice, and Don Zimmer was our manager, and he said, get in here. So I, I, I go, into the, go into his office, and he says, all right, kid. He said, you're my first baseman. Until you show me you're not my first baseman. We'll know in about a week. I went, a week? <laughs> <laughs> a week that's all I get is a week you know and I'm like oh my god well I better get hot you know I, I better get hot because you know do the math Chicago San Diego Des Moines Iowa Chicago San Diego Des Moines Iowa so so I got a anyway I got a couple of hits in my very first uh, game uh my first hit came that night I was hit by the way I was hitting seventh um and uh, and so that anyway, I got my my first at bat off of Jimmy Jones. Do you guys remember Jimmy Jones, the pitcher for San Diego? Oh, you yeah. do. Well, Jimmy was a he was kind of a he came up with a lot of fanfare, you know, number one pick and all that stuff. I you know his career probably didn't uh, didn't go as as well as he and the Padres hoped, but uh, you know he was still a solid pitcher. And I my first at bat off of my. He throws me a breaking ball and I cue it right off the end of the bat. The third baseman, you know, came came in about three steps, grabbed it and threw me out. So, well, we'll know in a week. So after one at bat, you know, I'm like, well, I, my ass is headed back to Des Moines here soon. So, um, but anyway, fast forward to the next at bat, he he grooves a fastball and I get my first base hit. I pull a pull a line drive out to Tony Gwynn and got my first base hit. Ended up getting uh, another hit that night. I went two for five, and we won the game. And uh, you know, I was pretty stoked. You know, we we won the game, and I got a couple of hits and and all that. And then the next night, I hit my first major league home run in, uh, in San Diego off a left-handed pitcher named Keith Comstock. 
the great Keith Comstock. <laughs> well, Mark, I'm, I'm sure you probably had this happen to you before. I took him deep. Two days later, he got released. <laughs> so, uh, they, so anyway, I, you know, they said, well, if that clown can hit a home run off, get out of here already. <laughs> hey, Gracie, you come up to this club, and you had some really good players there. And, and Barry, you know this full well because you were around the organization for years prior uh, to Mark's uh, entree into the big leagues, the the people around you in sports, Barry, don't they often create a culture, good or bad, for the upcoming players? Yeah, Mike, they do. And I think that Cub team was a good example of that. Uh, and as you said, Mark had been to two major league spring trainings, so he knew a lot of the players right. having been there with them. But, Mark, there's always somebody – who either helps you or influences you or helps you acclimate or be comfortable. Uh, who on that club of veterans helped you with that? Oh, good question. Um, now, mind you, Mark, Mark, what was your first year in the big leagues? Uh, 95. 95, okay. So, so you're significantly younger than me. But in 88, I don't know if it was quite the same in 95, but, man, it was like me and – Dave Martinez, you know, we're about the only rookies on the team. It was mostly, it was mostly veterans. And even the bench guys were veteran guys. Uh, you know, like for instance, I'm going to drop a few names here that were our bench guys that were terrific players in there, but they were older now. Like Jerry Mumphrey was one of our backup outfielders. Our backup catcher was Jim Sunberg, who was a terrific catcher in his day. Um, there was, there was just a, a, a lot of guys that were veterans. So, you know, I'm this, I'm this punk that, you know, and rookies got hazed and they got treated. Uh, they, they, they weren't treated all that respectfully in 1988. You were kind of the butt of a lot of jokes and you were, you were the butt of a lot of pranks. Uh, I got a lot of hot foots back in the day. There was a lot of hot foots. So my cleats were on fire on almost a daily basis. Um, but Honestly, the, the the one guy, and we all know him very well, that was really good to me from day one was Rick Sutcliffe. He was uh, he he was terrific for uh, for me, and and he saw that you know I was taking a, taking a pretty good beating from some of the, from from the veterans, and you know he told me he said he said kid, he goes here's what I want you to do. All these guys over here, he goes don't worry about them, you know. He goes, but here's what I want you to do. He goes, you're going to get a lot of advice from a lot of people, you know, and this is like a couple, three days into, into my career. And he's like, you're going to get advice from your, your manager. You're going to get advice from your coaches. You're going to get advice from your teammates. You're going to get advice from the fans and from broadcasters. And, and then and your mom and your dad and your brother, you're going to get advice from so many people. He said, here's what, here's what I want you to do. Find one person that you trust and listen to that person. Everybody else, nod your head, yep, yep, and let it go in here, in one ear and out the other. He goes, but find somebody you trust. And the guy that I trusted was a, an old first baseman. He was a coach of ours, uh, and he was our hitting coach at the time. His name was Joe Altabelli. He won a World Series with the Baltimore Orioles, Mike. And and uh, he was the guy that I trusted. Uh, and to this day, you know, Joe's still alive and I still keep in touch with him and uh, I still trust him. And that was some of the best advice uh, I ever got. And it was from from Rick Sutcliffe, who, um, you know, 
had a had a, had a long career of his own in a Cy Young award. Yeah, interesting, Gracie. Even in '95, I, I actually liked that aspect of you were checked at the door. Yes. Uh, the the veteran guys that had the ability to say, "Hey, listen, guys." You need to earn your stripes. I loved that aspect of it. And it was kind of borderline. It wasn't too much cutthroat like you're talking about. But you still had those veteran guys that made sure that you were understanding. My question to you, uh, moving forward from that and getting uh, some advice from Rick Sutcliffe, uh, Altabelli, which is I think is, is awesome. Did you have a moment that first year when you first got called up that you said, you know what, I, I feel like I belong here. Cause Zimmer asked you for a week. He gave you a week, but did you have that moment where you said, you know what, I, I belong here. Or did you always feel that way? You know what, Mark, what, what a great question. Uh, probably in, in, you know, when you, when you, your first big league camp, you know, you go in your, your number, your, the number on your back's usually like in the seventies or eighties or something like that. And, and you get to, you know, Leon Durham was the, was the first baseman, the incumbent first baseman at, uh, in, in Chicago. And he had a, he had a heck of a career for a, for a few years. He, he was a terrific player and he was really good to me by the way, too. But, but I remember, you know, just like taking batting practice or just taking ground balls and watching these guys. And there's Ryan Sandberg over there and there's Sean Dunstan over there. And there's Andre Dawson out in right field. And there's Rafael Palmero out in left field and Jody Davis behind them. And I remember just practicing with them. And I'm like, these guys are good, but, but I mean, I had them on this pedestal. And I'm like, yeah, these guys are really good. Now, mind you, Ryan Sandberg, Hall of Famer, Andre Dawson, Hall of Famer. But I'm talking about the, you know, the others, if you will. And I'm like, God, these guys are good. And then I'm then I'm playing. I'm like, you know, I'm I can I can deal with these guys. And then finally, when I got to the to the big, you know, you get sent down. Now you get to the big leagues, and you're in the lineup with these guys. And I'm like, not only can not only can I play here, but you know. These these pitchers that I'm facing, yeah, they're good, but I've been facing really good pitchers in the minor leagues too. And and the one thing I remembered that made it easier in the big leagues were the hitting backgrounds were just so crystal clear. You could see every seam on the ball instead of you know like in Clinton, Iowa, where there's a white riverboat right behind the pitcher or something like that, and you can't see anything. Or or in Wausau, Wisconsin, when the sun sets right in center field and you got no chance. So uh, I just, I just kind of was after about after about a month you have, and I, I guarantee you, you, I call them eureka moments where eureka, I belong here. And not only not only do I belong here, but I can I can play at a good level at, at, at this uh, at this baseball stuff and. And I never, I never lacked confidence. You know that playing against me, Mark mm -hmm. and Barry, you represented me all these years. I've, I've never lacked confidence uh, unless I'm on the first tee. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, the, the Eureka moment though came probably pretty early in my in my major league career. Mark, I, I want to go back a second to the advice you got from Sutcliffe, the great advice. I also know from personal experience, he's pretty good at the hazing part too. <laughs> uh, he, he even hazes agents. So. Uh, uh, anything you in particular you remember about any of his pranks besides the, the setting your shoelaces on fire? I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, you know, 
if you if you really want me to get long winded, but uh, Rick Rick was one of those guys that he he would uh, it was just you you constantly had to have your head on a swivel because you had to find out where where he was. You just needed to know where he was because he's gonna he's gonna do something to you. Well, one time, and I'm, I'll I'll keep this story as short as possible. One time, he was he loved to go over to a bar. Uh, right across the street called Murphy's Bleachers, uh, right right across the street from Wrigley Field. He 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 just loved it, and they loved him. So he says, "Kid," he says, "Why, why don't you?" He's still to this day. I'm 55 years old. He still calls me kid. And he says, "He says, kid, why don't you come over and have a beer with me and a couple of a couple of the other guys at uh, Murphy's Bleachers?" I'm like, "Man, oh, I'd love to. Thank you." And I, I'm still wet behind the ears. And anyway. They're, the fans are there and, you know, they're, they're giving us a little bit of space, but, uh, you know, Rick is, Rick was one of the, a man of the people and they loved him. And so we get then Murphy's bleachers had the best hamburgers you could ever imagine. So I get, I yeah, have a hamburger. So the hamburgers come and, you know, I'm about to, and I'm like, man, I got to go to the bathroom. Pardon me guys. I got to go to the bathroom. And so I go to the bathroom while I was in the bathroom, such, takes the bun of my hamburger, takes it off, takes a boatload of mustard and just <laughs> and lightly sets the top, the top bun back on the, well, you know, in my, in my early twenties, I thought I was hot, you know, and I thought I was good looking and all that stuff. And there's a couple of females that I'm making googly eyes with, you know, you know, about 10 feet away or something like that. So yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, come on. And the, the girls are, are about to come over and I take a bite of this mustard burger and the mustard just goes everywhere, all over, all over my, the, my chest. It pooled up at my feet, the mustard. There was so much mustard. There's a pool of mustard at my feet. And I don't even realize what has happened other than, uh, and I'm, oh, geez, I'm, I'm like, huh. Must have got a little too much mustard on here. And immediately the females did an about face and just walked the other way. And, and I'm sitting there, it, it ruined my shirt. Like, I, like, I, and it got on my shoes and I couldn't afford many, many pairs of shoes. So I, I had to wear mustard stained tennis shoes for about, for about two months because, because I couldn't afford another pair of shoes. Hey, Mr. Smooth. Let me, uh, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm, the, the female, I'm telling you, the, the females were like road, the roadrunner. Beep, beep, bow. You know what I always find interesting? Whenever we talk, uh, it's always the relationships you guys as players establish that you find to be uh, most rewarding to you long after you leave the game and the numbers are behind. And one of those relationships, which is why we think it's, it's fantastic that uh, one of our co-creators, Barry, uh, is able to join us today because he has been a representative for you since 1989, still does some of that heavy lifting for you now and again. But the client-player relationship has its backs and forth, right? I mean, it's, it's not always smooth. How did you link up with Barry? Why just select him? How did it even happen to begin with? Because this is one of the most long-standing relationships in baseball between player and agent. Yeah, he's been he's been my representative for for a, a long time now, and well. I hate to I hate to continue to talk about this guy, but I met him through Rick Sutcliffe, and um, you know, it, okay, that's the last time I'm going to say anything about Rick Sutcliffe for the rest of this. <laughs> I promise. So, so that said, um, 
uh, it was set up to, we, we were going to go golfing and Barry was in town and Sutcliffe had, had said, you know, Barry, you know, I, and I was not happy with my representation at the time I was looking, I was in the, in the market for new representation. So, uh, by design, Barry and I rode together on a golf course in spring training, uh, in 1989. And, uh, after, after 18 holes, uh, I wanted the, I wanted this man to, to represent me for not only um, the rest of my career, but for the rest of my life. And uh, that was that was one of the best decisions I ever made because, uh, you know, Barry and I have always gotten along very well. And Barry was was and still is very respected uh, in baseball, uh, in the front offices. And and I liked the fact that Barry had a had a. He had a small stable. He didn't have a big stable of players, you know, like uh, like a lot of agents have. And I realized that uh, just about every player uh, that that Barry has or still represents was was one of the really good guys in baseball. Guys that you guys that you always respected and kind of fun loving guys. And uh, you know, I, I I just think it was a small stable. So if you really needed some attention, Barry was always available. Uh, you know, from my point of view, I think the reason Mark decided to go with me because he knew he could always beat me at golf <laughs> after that one round. But but uh, seriously, um, uh, I don't know that we've ever had many contentious moments. And uh, it's when when people describe somebody, if I introduce Mark Grace, I don't introduce him as a client. He's a friend. And it's the same way I feel about Mark Sweeney. Um Right. These guys are some of my best friends in the world. And uh, I, I don't know how that happens. It just happens. But I can remember Gracie, uh, you know, I knew his parents well. I, I know his mom. Uh, he knew my family. I, I remember Gracie showing up at Thanksgiving one time on his Harley. And we had to delay dinner because he was giving my kids and all the neighborhood kids Harley rides around the neighborhood. But that's that's just the kind of relationship. He was a friend, someone you hung out with, and we still hang out together. And I'm, I've been blessed by the relationship. And Barry, you have a lot to do with that. That's why your, your clients love you is because of you, not because of us. Well, I you, think Mark. that really identifies Barry. Um, and also you, you made a good point, Gracie. That's the reason why you choose a representative that has the clientele that he had. You, you go through that landscape of the personalities he had. Uh, that really made your decision easy in that mind, which I think is really good. Uh, Gracie, I want to take you to day games um, and, and Wrigley Field. It has a lot to do with the aura of that old school feel. But you had in 1988, August 8th, 1988, you guys have your first night game at Wrigley Field. Take us to that moment, and what kind of stories uh, did you entail on that night? Okay, 8-8-88, the first night game at Wrigley And mind you, this is a really, really big deal in the city of Chicago. I mean, a huge deal. And I mean, every local celebrity and everybody, they they were in town, and they're going to show up, and they're going to be around. I mean, you, you Man, everybody that was somebody in Chicago was there. Well, oh God, Rick Sutcliffe <laughs> is, is you can't pitching. stop, can you? He's he's pitching that night, and and I mean the first inning. I mean everybody is going ballistic, and Rick Sutcliffe's gonna he's he's the starting pitcher against the Philadelphia Phillies, and uh, 
You guys remember uh, an outfielder named Phil Bradley? Oh, yeah. Okay. Phil Bradley is leading off for the Philadelphia Phillies. And the second pitch of the game, second pitch, Sutcliffe hangs a slider and Phil Bradley hits it onto Waveland Avenue. I mean, this ball got so small. I mean, it, it's it, he hit it so far and the crowd was going nuts and just all of a sudden, <laughs> just the lead balloon just hit Wrigley Field. And, and Phil Bradley, now think about this. Phil Bradley just got the first hit, got the first home run, scored the first run, got the first RBI. He got every every offensive thing first that you could possibly get in the in the first night game at Wrigley Field. So fast forward, bottom of the first inning. Okay. I'm I'm hitting third at the time. Sandberg is the is hitting second, Ryan Sandberg. First guy makes an out. Sandberg is at the plate, and there was a famous female, and she was famous for a couple of reasons, but her name was Morgana the Kissing Bandit. Oh, yeah. Morgana the Kissing Bandit comes running out to Rhino, okay? <laughs> I'm on deck. I'm like, that's Morgana. <laughs> so, so she comes up. And and gets right on in. Of course, she gets you know security gets her off the field, you know, and all that stuff. And and Rhino makes an out, and then I may I and that's the end. Well, so now the very next inning, it rains. It starts raining, and it starts raining, and it's raining and raining. I mean, it goes now. Now it's raining for an hour. Now it's raining for another. I mean, really hard rain. Tarps on the field. Well. I mean, there's guys were sliding on the tarp and all that stuff. And, and well, I remember Eric Gregg, the late Eric Gregg uh, was umpiring. He was the crew chief and, and you have, you have to call the game. You got to call the game. Like, like we, we couldn't play and it rained the rest of the night. So, so now that the, back then you, it was just a rain out, you know? So, so now the very next night we're playing another night game except this time the New York Mets are in town. Philly, that, that, was, that was the getaway day. Philly's gone. The New York Mets are in town. So Mike Bilecki is pitching for the, for the uh, Cubs, not Rick Sutcliffe. And Mike Bilecki has a one, two, three inning. And now we get to the bottom half of the inning and leadoff hitter makes an out. Samber makes an out. And I'm facing Sid Fernandez, left-handed pitcher for the, oh. for the New York Mets. And I bounce a ball up the middle for the first hit in an official night game at Wrigley Field. Sorry about that, Phil Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it got set off the hook for not giving up the first home run. And I still have that ball uh, out in my out in my dig me room where I dig myself. I got uh, see. I, I know Mark, you've got a dig me room too. Oh, you know? of course. So, so that ball is still is still out in my dig me room. First night game, first hit in a night game at Wrigley Field. Poor Phil Bradley, <laughs> he had it all. <laughs> but you know, Sutt now says he he never gave up a home run because it's not in the books. You can't prove it. Well, Didn't well, happen. Well, he's a damn liar because I saw it. I witnessed it. <laughs> Barry, you know what's interesting to me too is the the way that city 
responded to all the pomp and circumstance. I mean, it, it was one of the biggest deals going nationally. It was a huge story. Barry, you were there, uh, as you pointed out, and, and you'd seen a lot of this Cubs history leading into this. What was your recollection of, of what you felt that night meant to the city, not only the players, but the entire town? It, it was a huge event. I mean, it was one of the toughest tickets I've ever heard of. And uh, it was so big that they had a, one of, one of their gimmicks was to have a different celebrity call every inning with Harry Carey. They had so many people that wanted to show up and be involved. And in the first right. inning, I recall it was Bill Murray. And when, as soon as Bradley hit that home run, I re, Mark might remember it better than I do, but Murray's line was something along the line of, you know, maybe these lights aren't such a good idea after all, just <laughs> based on that home run. And and then I remember the rain out and uh, the things that ensued after that. Once again, Murphy's bleachers came into play because I think everybody got out of the rain and went over there and uh, another good time was had by all. Gracie, I want to take you to 1989, which I think is, is uh, for a player, it's one of those exciting moments that you're kind of anticipating. And we'll go into the playoffs against... Uh, the San Francisco Giants, who were very talented, and they had a talented first baseman named Will Clark. You guys locked horn individually uh, in a special series. Take us through that and your memories of your first playoff matchup. Well, once again, huge deal in Chicago because, uh, you know, Cubs, Cubs got to the playoffs in 84, but before that it was decades before, before – so – so it was a huge deal that we're that uh, the Chicago Cubs were in the postseason once again. Every celebrity is there, and we've got the we've got the home field. We're playing game one and game two in Chicago, and uh, I remember, oh uh, man, Greg Maddox, the great Greg Maddox, was pitching uh, for the Cubs, and uh, we were going up against a, a guy that was nasty. I don't know if you ever faced him, Mark, but. The starter for the San Francisco Giants was a guy named Scott Gereltz. And, um, I mean, he was nat- He had a power sinker and a, and a split finger. And in the first inning, I believe, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong because I don't have the, the stats in front of me, but I think Will Clark hit a two-run homer off Maddox in the first inning, I believe. You, might, mm-hmm. you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I believe he had a two-run homer. Well, now – or maybe even a three-run homer, but I, now the bottom of the first came. Uh, some Sandberg was on second base or third base, I'm not sure, but, but I had about a 10, 11, maybe even 12 pitch at bat. I'm bat Scott Gerelts and I are, I'm, I'm fouling off. I'm fighting for dear life. And sure enough, on like the 11th pitch, he plates a fastball and I hit a home run into left center to, to make it three to two. And and it ne- and it didn't stop from there. It, th- that's basically where my name kind of got put on the map. Was, you know, it, it's the postseasons where where you make or break your, you know, you make a name for yourself. Uh, and and I had a I had a monster. Even though we lost in five games, the '89 playoffs, I hit like 649 with I think in five games. I think I drove in six or seven runs. I'm not sure, but I hit 649. But Will Clark hit six fifty two, and 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 he he won the MVP of that series. But you know, but how about this? You know, a, a feather in my cap that I can that I can always. I got intentional. They started Roger Craig, the manager of the San Francisco Giants, started intentionally walking me 
to get to a Hall of Famer, Andre Dawson, like three or four times in that series. So how many people can say that? So I guess that's one of my career highlights. Interesting, Gracie. Uh, you came into that uh, Gorelts at bat. You had seven hits off him going into that. So it, it, it had a comfort level. I remember watching that series, and there were two moments. I remember that because they painted a picture of you just fouling pitches off. Right. And there were a couple that, that were really good pitches that you just barely missed. And then you go opposite field, as you alluded to. The other at bat, and it's funny you talk about Will, Will Clark, the other at bat was against Mitch Williams. When Mitch Williams was throwing some nasty stuff and any left-hander didn't want to face him because that uncomfortable feeling of, hey, he could un- uncork one here and, and dot me in the head. And he lines a line drive just as hard, if not harder, up the middle and he goes around first base, and you guys had kind of an exchange at first base because it was an incredible at bat. But that matchup was individual guys from a baseball fan and watching it and trying to grow. I watched that that, that matchup, and it was so appealing. Well, that's the will. Will had had just had a monster season. I think his teammate Kevin Mitchell won the MVP that year. Mm-hmm. But yeah. You know, I think I think the close second was Will Clark that year, and and I'm sure you faced Mitch Williams. That was so not fun from the left side. <laughs> you know, you know, ear hole, ear hole, outside corner, outside corner, ear hole, outside corner. So yeah, well, I mean, Will Clark just like a brick wall right in the right in the left-handed batter's box, and he did what I call he he, he Charlie Brown to Mitch Williams. I mean, just. Line shot right back up the middle, and that was the final dagger. And yeah, he got to first base, and I actually—it it was almost conciliatory. It was like I, I almost had to wave the white flag. Sorry, man. You know, yeah, I, I gave you my best shot, and 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 you're still standing, and you got the big blow. You know, you make an interesting uh, point there, and that is that the playoffs are kind of where you make your bones right. as a player. And you do have this wonderful 89 uh, playoff run. You're just 25 years old. You hit 300 during a regular season. And as you pointed out, I want this clear. This isn't me, but as you pointed out, you're a single guy in a pretty good city. And they respect your work ethic there. They know you're a lunch pail kind of guy, and you represent the city so well. Uh, you start to pick up that national name, you pick up Barry Axelrod uh, as your agent and then friend. You could almost call this the perfect storm for a young guy in a great town. <laughs> what was it like running around Wrigleyville after that 89 season and through the rest of the, uh, the decade of the 90s? Um, it, was, it was certainly above average. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I was, I, was, uh, I was a single guy just about my entire career and you know whether whether you're single or married in Chicago if if you're a cub if you're a cub you're 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 adored and and whether you're the whether you're Ryan Sandberg or whether you're Sammy Sosa you know a a very famous guy or whether you're you know the the 25th guy I mean you're adored in Chicago if you're a cub and you know, I was, I think a reason that, that I was, I was appreciated in Chicago, I think more than anything is, yes, I was, I was a, I was a good baseball player, but that only makes me a better baseball player than, than people, you know, 
Mike, I, you're better at what you do than I, than I am. You know, Mark, you're better at what you do than I am. Barry, you know, certainly, I, it just means I'm a better baseball player than than most people. It doesn't mean I'm a better person. So, so I would go. You know, it, that that was the cool thing about day games, and and Mark Mark brought it up. It was like a nine to five job. You know, I would get I would get to the ballpark at about nine fifteen. And then the you know, one twenty game would end at around you know four thirty something like that, or and you know ha- have a couple or five uh, Hawaiian punches after the game in the clubhouse, and then uh, and then then it would be dinner time. Any hey anybody want to go have a bite somewhere? You know we go we'd go over to Murphy's have have a Hawaiian punch, and then uh, and then go go somewhere. You know some of the best restaurants in the world are in Chicago, Illinois. So so that was kind of my routine. Day games, you know, and and because of day games, even though I have, I I, I kind of self-deprecate a little bit about what a partier I was and all that. Honestly, you it, as a as a visitor, like uh, like with with Mark and others, as a visitor, you can you can go to Wrigley Field and go out and you know pound the pavement for a couple days in a three-game series and get away with it. But if you have like a seven, ten-game homestand. You just can't do it. You honestly, in in my 13 years in Chicago, I was probably out past you know, past midnight. You can count them on one hand because, as a single guy, if if you if you hadn't done your damage by about 10 o'clock, you ain't going to do any damage. So take it on <laughs> home, you know. You know, unfortunately, I think I was there all those five times you were out after midnight because I, I can remember them, but. Uh, Mark, let me do, you've mentioned a bunch of your teammates and it was such a great team there in the, the late eighties and through the nineties, just a real quick name association with you with a few of those guys. Okay. Um, just your quick response and reaction to these guys. Um, Andre Dawson. Uh, the most professional baseball player I ever met. Greg Maddox. Uh, he was the kid. He, he was like that kid that, in school that you hated because he was like that really smart kid that always got an A plus on the test and always set the curve. You know, he was, he was like a, he was like a professor on the mound. He was a, he was, he was, he was brilliant on the mound, but you hated him because he always set the curve and, you know, and he was like, you hated the bully that stole your lunch money and you hated the kid that set the curve. He was the kid that set the curve. Uh, this next Randy guy, Johnson, Randy Johnson, was the bully that stole your lunch money. <laughs> this next name, uh, you've you've uh, uh, attributed some of your success in winning gold gloves to him, Sean Dunstan. I thank God every day for Sean Dunstan because he did. He, I, I wouldn't have got my four gold gloves if it wasn't for Sean. And honestly, did you ever did you ever get to know him much, Barry or, or Mark? I, I knew bit. him. Yeah, I, I knew him and, and to a point where he was always had a smile on his face. And especially now, even when he's working with the Giants, right. he's he's tremendous. Uh, uh, he's he's one of my favorite all time teammates. Well, when you think of it, too, there's a, there's a couple other people. And, and first off, with Sean Dunstan, is it true that he was nervous about throwing? I mean, because we know he possessed the best arm that I've ever seen from shortstop, if any other position but was he nervous about throwing? I know I was nervous when he threw. <laughs> uh, he, see, he, there was nothing smooth about Sean. Sean was so raw. Like, like you think about smooth shortstops, you think 
Barry Larkin. You think uh, now in today's game, like a, like um, a Nick Ahmed in, in Arizona or uh, Crawford uh, up in San Francisco, those guys are smooth. You can't say that about Sean. Sean wasn't smooth at all. Like Sean, Sean had a, a gift in that right arm that that's like anything I've ever seen. I mean, you played first with, with, with Caminiti throwing it across the diamond and, you know, God rest his soul. Caminiti had a rocket arm, but I I don't think it was like Sean's. I think Sean's was the best ever. And, and he like a, like a, a bouncer over the mound that a, that a shortstop would have to come in and throw it on the run. He, he didn't have the ability to throw it on the run. He, he would, he would plant, and throw from about 50 feet and and it here it comes and it it, it was like a comet with a with with a tick you know a trail behind it and <laughs> and i and, and i told him i like dude you're throwing it up in the 10th row okay and i said look i said if you're gonna miss me dude miss me down low i i got a chance to help you down low i said but but you know, I can't help you in the tenth row. I, I, I just, I just can't because, you know, there, there, there was a, a movie made about that with uh, Wesley Snipes and uh, Woody Harrelson, and, uh, and, and it's, it's true to life with, with me over at first base. So, you know, I can't help you in the tenth row. Well, honestly, after I told him that, after I said, dude, just, just miss me low if you can. Every throw seemed to be right on the button after that, and they they weren't throwing it in the, in the tenth row anymore. But you know that that guy was was so much fun to play with, and uh, and once once I told him that to miss me low, that that was his eureka moment, if you will. Gracie, uh, this game is is comprised of lifers, and when you are around somebody that means so much to the game. Uh, it's incredible moment. And you mentioned him earlier in our, our podcast. And I want to go back to your first manager, Don Zimmer. So many people thought so highly of him, the late Don Zimmer. What did you feel uh, about him and how did he impact your game? Well, he, he was, first of all, as a, as, as, as a manager, he was, he was not, uh, he wasn't easy at all. He was, he was an old school, uh, you know, rough, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get real close with my players. You know, I'm not your friend, I'm your manager. And he was tough on me. He was tough on me. You know, I, I got called into his office multiple times and, you know, I'd, I'd be sitting there and our clubhouse manager, an old guy, an old, old guy named Yoshikawano would come up to me and says, the man wants to see you. And I'd be like, damn, not again. You know, so, so I go, I'd have to go up to his office and he'd shut the door. And I'd shut the door and I'd be in there for about 10 minutes and then I'd have to leave with my ears bleeding, you know? And so, so he, he was tough on me. And I remember, uh, you know, I played for, him. I, I think he was there for about two and a half, three years that I was there my, my first. And, and he, as, as my career got, as, as he earned more trust in me, you know, I, I had less, uh, less meetings in his office, but, and he, and his trust started to build in me. But when, when you know, Towards the end of his cub time, he 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 sat with me one time. And he said, he said, you know what, son, I was tough on you. He goes, but I, I was tough for a reason because first of all, you needed somebody to be tough on you. And he goes, and I knew you could take it. And and I, I thought about that. And I don't know about you, Mark, but 
I needed, I needed tough love from, mm -hmm. from my coaches. And like, if you were just going to let me do whatever I want, you know, be on my own program and do whatever, I, I'm sorry. That's not the kind of coach I wanted. I wanted somebody that held me accountable. And, and, you know, if I, if I did something I shouldn't have done, you know, either a teammate or a coach or a manager should, should, should jump up my fanny. And, uh, and, but, uh, Don Zimmer was the first and, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really thankful for him. Uh, he, he was the guy that believed in me. He was the guy that wanted me to, to come play first base for him. So I owe a lot to him. Gracie, we've been just recounting some of your wonderful stories and it, it occurs to me, I, I'd like to hold you accountable if you'll indulge me because uh, I was add you to the list now, Mike. Yeah. Right. right? I, I was one of those guys who was watching you play. I was working in Chicago uh, back into the 90s and watching your career and appreciating all you've done. And we mentioned it a moment ago how you led uh, all of baseball the decade in the 90s in hits and in doubles. You hit 309 times. And I think I speak for a lot of us in Chicago and fans around the game when we wonder why it was you kept signing these short-term deals. And I'm glad I have Barry here. Because I had a lousy agent. Because Yeah, to <laughs> fact check all of this, because it would seem, on the one hand, you had a ton of leverage. What went into the, the thought behind one-year deal or short-term deals? Well, I mean, Barry, do you want to take that? Or do you, you want to Yeah, that? well, I, I, uh, my answer is I had a lousy client. Um, you know, Mark was a guy that the media guys loved. They could go to his locker after a game and, and in two minutes, get all the quotes they needed right on. And then he also enjoyed being out with them. And, uh, it seemed like once a year I would get a call from a writer and say, Hey, we were out with Gracie last night. And, you know, we had a few Hawaiian punches and, uh, he told us, even though he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year, he wants to stay with the Cubs. He doesn't care. He's not going anywhere. And I'd immediately call Mark and go, can you just not talk? Or if you're going to talk, tell a fib and, and say that you might think about going somewhere. But we ended up doing, except for two two-year deals, uh, one with the Cubs and one with the Diamondbacks, one year at a time. And it worked out. Mark's not destitute. He's doing okay. So, uh, Honestly, And he got to stay in Chicago. And I think Barry will tell you, too, I probably made – more money by signing one-year contracts than than I would have. I remember there was a couple of couple of offers that Barry and I got from the Cubs, but they were they they were not worthy of signing. And uh, you know, a lot of a lot of guys want that uh, want that stability and want the you know the three-year deal or four-year deal. And you know, I, I once again, you know, I, I never lacked confidence. So I'm like, you know what? If, if, if we can't get a multi-year deal, I'll go out and, and kick some ass for one more year. I remember asking Mark on more than one occasion, are, you know, are you still going to be good next year? Cause if you are, then let's just go with it and, and, uh, <laughs> and take our chances. And he always said, yes, by the way, didn't lack confidence. Well, Gracie, uh, it, I want to take you all the way through because we alluded to all the hits you had in the 90s. And we also talked about some of those hitters that were pretty incredible in the game and almost took that forefront. I want to go back and, and hear your thoughts about Tony Gwynn, especially because in San Diego, you went to San Diego State. He was already established in the game and you knew how good he was. And to be able to have that feat in the 90s where you could lead the, the game in hits. That's pretty special when you start looking at uh, the type of hitters that you were going against. 
No, thanks, Swain. But uh, Tony, I remember, you know, and I still can't believe we're talking about him in the past tense. Uh, but, but Tony, I, I, when I would go to, to spring training, you know, the, the here, here come the riders. Okay. You know, Gracie, what, what are the goals? What are your goals this year? Okay. Here's a, you know, we, we want to, we want to win the world series, something like that. Okay. And somebody would always ask because I was, I was usually in the top 10 and in, in, you know, for buying for a batting title. And they said, are you, is, is one of your goals to get a batting title this year. And I said, as long as number 19's in San Diego, the rest of us are fighting for second. <laughs> and, and, and you know, that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, and Grace, Gracie, about, when, real quick though, Mike, how about the strike year, the year we went on strike, Tony Gwynn was hitting, I believe 395 or something like that. Yeah. When we went on strike, he could, and I fully think he would have, he would have hit 400. It, I don't know that that mark, frankly, is is ever going to be reached. The way the game's played now, especially with Anymore. the C, right, with the sea of relievers coming in, and how just how challenging it is uh, with the grind. Uh, that said, though, you make the decision to stay. You fight Barry, obviously, tooth and nail. Uh, obviously, I jest, but the city just continues to embrace you. And I love 1997 for a bunch of different reasons. For one, I was younger. Uh, but more important to you, it was poster day for you in oh 1997, God. which has to be right up there with bobblehead day, but takes on added significance for Mark Grace. Okay, Mike, thanks. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> um, I've, actually, I've actually got the poster here at my house. I should, I should break it out, but I'll, I'll do that when, when we're wrapping up. But yeah, 1997, San Francisco Giants are in town in Wrigley Field, and it's Mark Grace poster day. First 25,000 people to go through, through the turnstiles at Wrigley Field, get a life-size growth chart of yours truly holding a carton of milk with one of those stupid milk mustaches. Remember those things? Yeah. So, so Got milk? First 25, now, now, and... Here, and here we go. They and they're handing them out scroll style, you know, you know, a poster and like a scroll. And and they're handing them out in the, the back side of the poster was facing out. So they were all like white scrolls, and they're huge. They were six foot long scrolls or something like that. So so every time I would come to the plate, people are waving their scrolls. Woohoo! Grace is up, you know. Well, fast forward to the ninth inning. We're down a run, and the San Francisco Giants closer, a guy named Rob Nin, is on the mound. Filthy. And, and yeah, and we, and the Cubs, oh, man, here come the Cubs. We get a rally going, and now bases are loaded. We're down a run, down a run, bases are loaded, one out, and guess who's coming to the plate? Mr. Poster Boy himself. And and now, oh, man, here's, and the fans are just going ballistic. Yeah, woo! You guys know, base hit wins it, sack fly ties it, something. Well, there's the posters. Four, six, three, double play to end the ball game. 25,000 posters come flying on the field. They were so pissed at me for ending the game with a double play. It it looked, because it was all white, it looked like it snowed on Wrigley Field. 25,000 posters just came flying. Now, not every poster came out on the field. There was three guys right behind the, the third base dugout, the home dugout. They opened up their posters and just ripped them in half as I'm coming, coming into the – there wasn't a big enough hole 
for me to crawl into. So now my, my, my moral of that story is no matter how bad a day you guys are think, think you, you're having, you've never had that bad a freaking day. I promise. <laughs> Uh, Mark, I still have mine. It, it hung in our uh, one of the rooms with that marked all our kids' heights on it throughout their all their growth. So I was say, you one of them still exists. Of, you must have gone out on Wrigley Field and picked it up off the ground. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Mike. <laughs> you know, Mark. Uh, one of the things we talk about, one of the difficulties we had in Chicago, was the time when it came time. Uh, that the Cubs didn't want you back again. Right. And we had gone in and asked them for an extension after a good year. And uh, uh, I have one more name association to throw at you. And that's Hesop Choi. And I wanted to get your reaction to him. <laughs> well, he was the guy that, uh, that, that got me run out of Chicago. Uh, he, was a, he was a South Korean guy that actually, he's, a, he's actually a hitting coach in South Korea. And I, I only know that because the manager of that team is Matt Williams. Matt Williams wow. is a manager over yeah. in South Korea and, and his hitting coach is Hesop Choi. So I called up Matty. I said, what the hell are you doing? How are you hiring that guy? He got run me out. He, he ran me out of Chicago. And so, so anyway, uh, Hesop Choi was a, I, he's just huge guy, big guy. And all we kept hearing was Hesop Choi and a ball hit a home run. And, Couple of days later, he stopped Choi, drove in three runs and a ball, and pretty soon, uh, the, the after the season was over, and now we're negotiating for a new. I think Barry, I think Barry probably thought he was negotiating for he stopped Choi more than he was uh, negotiating for me because that's the only name you heard, wasn't it, Barry? That's uh, I, I've told Mark I came out of a meeting with Andy McPhail, and he said, "Well, how'd it go? Are we going to get that extension?" I said, well, I mentioned your name three or four times, and he must have said Hesop Choi about 50 times. So I don't think things are looking too good for being here in the next few years. Right. And, and uh, they, they decided to go, to, to go another way and, and send me on my merry way. And, and Hesop Choi, you know, he, talented guy, but he didn't, uh, he didn't have the career I think a lot of people expected of him. And, uh, you know, and there was, there was certainly some, some, Hard. There were. It didn't. It didn't end well. There were some hard feelings, especially on my part. Uh, you know, it's a. It's a. It's a long story, and you know, the Cubs have their side of the story. I have my side of the story, and then we also know there's 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 always a third side of the story. But uh, you know, to this day, and 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 here it is, uh, almost twenty years later. Yeah, I still I'm still disappointed in the way it ended. Gracie, interesting that uh, the power of Hesop Choi didn't really translate to the big league level because uh, we hear those type of stories that they're so good in the minor leagues and they come up to the big leagues and the consistency that you added in that Cubs uniform. The disappointment part, and this isn't a question, but the disappointment part really comes from baseball fans and watching you. You deserved to finish your career in the Cubs uniform because that's what – I think back in that day, it, it it was really important for a lot of players, wasn't it? Yeah, and 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 thank you. And you know, thirteen years with an organization is a long time. That's uh, you know, that's I think myself and only a handful of others at at, at that in that era of baseball. You know, we're we're able to stay at least that long. Craig Biggio comes to mind. Uh, he was one of them, uh, Baggy. But 
But that said, uh, you know, you, 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 you form a loyalty, you know, and there were times where Barry, Barry would say, you know, Mark, you can, you can hold out for a little more money if you want. Ah, Barry, you know, the Cubs have been good to me. They gave me the opportunity. Let's do this. And, and, uh, you, you, if you you hope that they feel as loyal to you as 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 you to them, uh, but I found out I, I found out really quick that it's um, it's not always a two way street uh, when it comes to that, and sometimes that that two way street will come back and kick you in the teeth. Gracie, how emotional was it for you uh, to play that 2000 season, your final year in Chicago, when if you didn't know it, the writing was on the wall, and this is something I think a lot of fans don't really see. They see the smiling Mark Grace or player out there in pinstripes enjoying the big league life. But it's not as easy as you guys make it appear on the outside. What was that grind like for you that season? Well, I'll, I'll be honest, Mike. I didn't uh, I didn't really feel like it was going to be my last season. I, going Once that season ended, I fully expected – I was a free agent, but I fully expected to, uh, to sign, you know, at least uh, one or two more years with the Cubs. And, um, well – I, I certainly didn't expect to get non-tendered and I don't, you know, I think you, you have to know a lot about baseball to understand what non-tendered means, but, but I went, uh, they could have offered, I, I would have said, Hey, can I, can I play for $20? And the answer would still have been no, that's what non-tendered means. So, so I didn't expect, but, but now before everybody goes out and feeling sorry for, Poor old Gracie. No, it worked out really well that my last three years ended in Arizona. I ended up being a uh, being on a World Series champion 2001 team, an even better team that didn't win the World Series in 2002. And even better, Mark Sweeney, I didn't have to face Randy Johnson and Kurt Schilling anymore after that. <laughs> that's, so that's such about, a good point. That's about <laughs> 25 less outs I got to make those last three years. You're not kidding, because I don't think any left-handed hitter wanted to face Randy Johnson. <laughs> I want to take us to that magical moment, because as a player, we already alluded to that NLCS against the Giants. But the culmination of a very, very good career is going to the World Series in a magical moment for really the nation after nine 11, they needed some, some levity with a lot of heavy hearts. Right. And you guys were playing the New York Yankees. You had home field advantage. So you start in Arizona, but then you play your first game at Yankee stadium in your whole career. Take us through that moment uh, that you had, especially the emotions going into that. Well, we, we had just uh, gone through a really tough uh, division series. In, in 2001 against the St. Louis Cardinals. It was, that's back when you played five game series. The first one was a five game series. I mean, that was a hard fought, nasty, two teams that did not like each other going at it. And uh, Tony Womack ends up uh, hitting a walk off in game five in the ninth inning to, to win. And so that was a hard fought series. Now we go to face the Braves. You know, the Braves are always there at that time. And, and, you know, we were like, okay, you know, here comes Chipper and Andrew Jones and the the three headed monster on the mound and Glavin Maddox and Smoltz. And honestly, we we kind of went through them rather easily. I mean, we we won the seven game series four four games to one and kind of just kind of hammered them. So now we're gonna we're waiting and 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 the New York Yankees. I don't know if a lot of people remember this. They beat a team in Seattle. I think Seattle won close to 120 games that year. 
something like that. They are like 116 or 117 games. Seattle was unbelievable that year, and the Yankees hammered them in uh, in the ALCS. So, so I would say, you know, here we are, the Diamondbacks. We got a veteran team, a good, you know, a bunch of guys that are that are a, that are a, a mash of guys from other teams. You know, nobody nobody came up through a Diamondbacks organization at that time because Diamondback organization was only four years old. So we had, we were all just you know. From, from other teams and a bunch of veteran guys. The Yankees were the greatest team in the league that year. Not the best, I thought Seattle was, but the Yankees were the greatest. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because just because that organization and their, and their, you know, their swag that they had, you know, and the star power that they had. So uh, they come into town uh, in, in Arizona, and we, we kick around – uh, Mike Mussina and 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 we also beat uh, Andy Pettit. Uh, Matt Williams had a three-run homer off Andy Pettit, and we we kind of kicked around Mike Mussina. So we're up to zip, going back to New York, and this is right after 9/11 in New York. And God, it was you know New York was you know everybody's hearts were feeling for for New York and the Yankees and 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 9/11 and all that, and we. Uh, we ended up going to ground zero and meeting the, the emergency workers and the firemen and the, and the cops. And, you know, they were, they were like, Hey, yo, you, you know, you diamondbacks, take it easy on our Yankees already, you know? And then the other half of the emergency workers were like, we love you guys. We're Mets fans. You know, so, so <laughs> it was, but, but it, it was such an emotional thing going, there's ground zero right here in front of you. And, and I, you know, I hate to, I hate to say this, but, I'll never ever get over what I smelled at Ground Zero. It was the worst smell I've, I've, I've ever, and and it, it smelled like death. And I hope I never ever ever smell that again. But it was one of the most emotional things I've ever done going to Ground Zero because it had only happened, you know, a month, month and a half, whatever it was, you know, prior to the to the World Series. So, uh, but anyway, we go into. We, we go into Yankee Stadium, like you said, Mark, I had never played in Yankee. I was a National Leaguer my whole career. And even in, and when most of my uh, interleague time, you always just played in, you know, the, the West would play the West American League National League, or the Central would play the Central. And we never played uh, the East, which would be Boston, the Yankees, you know, th- those teams. So this is the first time I've ever been in, in Yankee Stadium. And he said, boy, what a dream come true. You know, I remember as a, as a kid watching, you know, Yankee, Yankee games. Cause every Saturday it was, it was the Yankees with uh, Joe Garagiola and Tony Kubek. The Yankees were playing somebody. So, and here, yeah, so I, I we're stretching before, before the game. And I'm just, I, I just lay down on the grass out in, out in the outfield, just laid down this, this, this Mecca of a, of a stadium. And, and it was, I'm like, I'm playing the, in the world series in Yankee stadium against the New York Yankees. And, well, long story short, we got we got beaten three just oh my gosh, just tough games. You know, did you ever face Young Young Kim, Mark? I did. I, I hated filthy. it. He was filthy. I mean, he was one of the he was one of the most nasty pitchers you could face. And you know, somehow, some way, they they got to him in in game three. I I think they beat us beat us in game three without a without a walk off am i correct yes okay so and then game four 
we we've got them. We've got them. And sure enough, uh, uh, O'Neill hits a ball. Paul O'Neill hits a ball off young, a little bloop out in the outfield that lands in front of Luis Gonzalez. And now with two outs, Tino Martinez comes up and I mean, we're one out away and he, he's going to strike out Tino Martinez. Not no problem. Boom. There it goes. Center field tie game. And, and, you know, we're just kicked in the teeth and we ended up losing that game. So now the next game comes game five and young, young kid gives up a, gives up a home run to uh, Brocious. I think yeah, it was Brocious to yep. tie the game with two outs in the ninth inning and uh, an inning or two later, young, young Kim still on the mound and, and Jeter, Derek Jeter, you know, like, like, like only Jared Jeter can, because, you know, he's, he's one of the greatest of all time. Basically, shanks a ball to right over my head. It goes right over my head at first base. I'm like, well, that's the third out. Let's go win this thing. And, and, and let's go win this thing in the top half. Reggie Sanders is, is chasing after the ball in right field. And I'm like, oh, my God, Reggie's, Reggie's running out of room. He's running. Oh, no. The ball goes in the first row about 310 feet. And that's a, it's an out in any other ballpark in this country, including high school fields, but it's a home run at Yankee stadium. And I sprinted off the field. I didn't even let, I didn't even let Jeter hit home, but because this place was so loud and it, I, I, it was rocking. I felt like honestly that, uh, that Yankee stadium just may come crumbling down because of that home run. And, and, uh, it was just, uh, it, it was a bad feeling, man, but God, that was loud. Hey, Mark, there was a, a moment that I remember, uh, yes. I think in game five, where, uh, well, I remember a moment in game four where you hit one in the upper deck, but you wouldn't talk about that, so I'll mention it. But in game five, um, when... Uh, well, thank you, Barry. El Duque knows my name. <laughs> <laughs> the 3-1 but, pitch into the upper tank. <laughs> yeah, and and if you, I don't know if you can ever find that at bat. Oh, yeah. But... but if you, if you watch the at-bat, first pitch, I mean, he bow ties me. Mm-hmm. Second pitch, bow ties me again. I mean, he's, you know, you know, as a left-handed hitter, when a right-hander that's kind of a three-quarter guy, when he's, when he's running up and in on you, he's doing it on purpose. He's not yanking the pitch that much. So, and now he, he throws a strike on the outside corner for strike one. Third, now, now the two one bow ties, I think he bow ties me again or he misses with, and then so three one, he just threw one right down the middle, and and uh, like I said, uh, that that was one that was one of the coolest moments I've ever had is watching a ball go into the upper deck at Yankee Stadium because you know I wasn't a big power hitter, guys, but don't tell that to El Duque, he thinks I am. See that I knew you wouldn't want to talk about it. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but the the moment I'm talking about is is uh, I think after the second blown save by Bian Young Kim there's a moment where you went to the mound and yeah. uh, I remember you seeing you put your arm around him. I just, what did you say to him at that point? Well, I, I ran to the mound cause you could see that he was really distraught. So I put my arm around his neck and I basically told him he, he doesn't speak any English, but I told him, will you stop giving up home runs? <laughs> no, that's, that's not true. I didn't say that. I, I actually, you could see he was so distraught that now it became the, this young man is now much more important than this baseball game because 
because Tony Womack and I went up there and, and tried to console him because he, and, and, and he's unconsolable. He's unconsolable. You can't, you know, in, in this situation. And, you know, honestly, we were worried that he might do a full gainer off the empire state building after this game. And, and, you know, it was, it was, it was, a, you, you felt terrible for the young man because uh, you know how good he is. You know how badly he wanted to finish out those games. But once again, the Yankees were the greatest team and they weren't, they weren't having it. Gracie, I want to take you to back to Arizona. You guys win game six behind Randy Johnson. Right. Uh, which was a huge game. I remember uh, Joe Buck saying, we'll see you tomorrow night. And that's one of those elements that here comes the fan in me. Game seven. Is there anything better? Perfect timing known to being one of the best series leading up to game seven. But here you are. And I'm going to paint the picture a little bit. Okay. Um, Eighth inning, they have a 2-1 lead, the Yankees do, and who comes in? Enter Sandman, right? Here he comes in, Mariano Rivera. He strikes out the side in the eighth. Yes. Okay, ninth inning, uh, you, you guys have Randy Johnson coming in, and he throws two outs, which he pitched the night before, which right. was an incredible he motivational. Pitched, he pitched six innings the night before. It was incredible. So uh, take us to the ninth inning. Who's leading off against Mariano Rivera? And to, for the listeners to understand, Mariano Rivera was probably easier, and I'll say that in quotes, easier right-handed than left-handed because of that nasty cutter, the 96 at the time, 98, cutting action in on your hands. You lead off the ninth. Take us through that at bat and what you were thinking. Well, I was I was on deck and, I, and you know, letting him throw his warm-up pitches and – did you ever play with or know a guy named Greg Colbrin? I do. Okay, yes. Greg Colbrin was going to be pinch hitting. I, you know, I was going to hit, and Greg Colbrin was going to pinch hit uh, in the pitcher spot, I believe, or Damian Miller spot or somebody's spot. Anyway, uh, I said, I said to Greg Colbrin, I said, I said, Colby, what do you think? Should I take a strike? And and this this was one of the best things he could have said because it got me pumped up. He goes take a strike. He goes, hell no, Gracie, take him deep. <laughs> and I was just like, that was the answer I was looking for right there. Because I mean, it got me fired up until I got in the box against Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer of all time. And think about this, Mark, you know this, but here's the greatest closer of all time. Never, never threw an off-speed pitch. Never. Mm -hmm. He threw a four-seam fastball and a cut fastball, and they were both in the mid mid to high 90s, never threw a curveball, never threw a slider, never threw a changeup. How about that? And major league hitters still could not hit him. And so I know you're going to be shocked. The first pitch is a cutter, and, and, he, and he misses with a 1-0 with pitch, and the next pitch was a cutter on the inside corner, and I fought it off into center field for a base hit. And as I come around first base, you know, the place is going nuts, and – Bob Brenly, our manager, made the greatest managerial move of his <laughs> career. He pinch ran for me because, because, and he David Delucci was the pinch runner. He comes running out. And to, to tell the listeners a little bit about my speed, I remember Tommy Lasorda screaming at me from the first base dugout one time Grace, you're so slow. If you, if you raced a pregnant lady, you'd come in third. <laughs> so, so. Needless to say, I was not fleet of foot. So, so now, here comes David DeLucci. I'm running off the field. My season is over. My season's over. If we tie up the game, I'm done. I, 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 so, 
So my season is now over. And I'm, and all of a sudden I'm like, wow, you know, we, we I'm going to, I'm done. I'm going to sit here. And, and that was, it was almost a feeling of finality. Like, like, you know, gosh, yeah, yeah, we got a chance to, but, but we're not going to score two runs off Mariano Rivera. You know, well, he just got a base hit, but, you know, he never gives up two. He, he might go extra innings or something like that. But, well, sure enough, I think, uh, I think that inning took like 11 pitches and, uh, and two runs scored on a, on a beautiful bloop by Luis Gonzalez. But people don't remember, Tony Womack got the biggest hit of that, of that inning. Yeah, Gracie, I wanted to, I wanted to paint this picture because it's there's some interesting elements of how that inning went on. Damian Miller stays in instead of Colburn, right? And Bob Brenly has him bunt. He bunts it back to Rivera. Rivera, very good, uh, a former shortstop back in the day. He it was, was very accurate throwing. It yeah, it, it was incredible. So he throws it, and launches it into yep. center field. Derek Jeter gets hurt during that play because Delucci sliding into second base. It's first and second. Here comes Jay Bell. He was just fine. That was a little little dramatic. Let's not kid ourselves, Jeter. Well, he he was limping around, which I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Jay Bell comes in known for being a guy that could execute anything and and a very professional. He He lays down a bunt. And Rivera throws out DeLucci at second base. Right. He had an opportunity, Scott Brocious, to be able to, in my mind, get Jay Bell at first base. He doesn't. He just gets the out, which that really sets up the time for Tony Womack. He comes in and gets that big double. You guys score a run off Rivera. What was that feeling like? You were a fan then because you're over the railing. Right. right. But what was that feeling like just scoring and tying the game? Did that help you guys? Well, yeah, Tony Womack hits the double down the line. Now that now that the home crowd, which is Diamondback crowd, is just once again, it's just going ballistic. It was amazing. And now I'm like, oh my God. You know, we, now it's on, it's second and third, one out. And and we've got Craig Council now at the dish. And Craig Council, just like you said, Mark, another fundamentally sound guy, a guy mm-hmm. that can put the bat on the ball, this and that. Well, Mariano Rivera runs a cutter up there and hits him in the wrist. So now, now the bases are loaded and what, you know, an MVP candidate, he didn't get MVP that year, but Luis Gonzalez drove in 140 something runs or something like that. Uh, this year, Luis Gonzalez was the guy we needed at the plate. And, uh, sure enough, a uh, couple of pitches, a couple of pitches in, uh, that Joe Torrey brings the infield in yeah, to, interesting. Try to, to, to try to, and now he's been he's been second guessed about that you know many times but so but he brings the infield in and Gonzo it's this bloop that uh, I don't even know if it got to the outfield grass but uh, <laughs> I'm really glad the infield was in thank you very much Joe Torrey game set match it was, it was interesting great. it was interesting because uh, Gonzo had 11 strikeouts in that series he had the good right. first game but really struggled. 57 home runs, as you said, had an MVP year, right. but uh, you were, you were top step right there. Oh, what was that feeling like when that lands in, in J bell scores? Uh, tell us from, from your lens, what happened? Honestly, Mark and guys like, like, like the goosebumps are already starting right now. You know, uh, the other day out here in Arizona, they, they replayed the game seven and, and I'm, my two sons, my two teenage boys, and my girlfriend and myself, we're watching the game. 
I know what happens. You know, <laughs> spoiler alert, Diamondbacks score two in the bottom of the ninth off Rivera. But I was nervous watching the game. Even though I, you know, it was 20 years ago or whatever, I was nervous. So needless to say, I'm I'm going, my my ulcer is having a baby in the dugout at the time. So and Sure enough, and and there's the little bloop, and we just knew that there was no outfielder, no infielder going to be able to catch this ball, and a feeling a feeling of of electricity or something went through me that I've never I had never felt before, and I've never felt since. I mean, if I ever make a hole in one in my life, I might get a feeling like that, but but I, I don't know. It's a it's a it's a feeling that uh, that that you just can't explain and and I just I, a bunch of grown men out there crying crying on the field because uh most of us had never won a world series before I think council council had won one with Miami and I believe maybe one other guy had had been on a world series champ so there wasn't a dry eye in the house Gracie they say the only thing more nerve-wracking than watching something unfold that you have some control over is watching something unfold that you have no control over which in essence is the difference between somewhat being on the field as a player, which is nerve wracking enough, but in being a fan and you're just watching it with no f- real tangible effort to affect the outcome. I guess there must be a third element in there, Barry. And that is you're on both sides of the fence. You've got an investment in a player and a human being on the field, but you're also a fan of the game and you're ringside, so to speak, watching this happen. Yeah. And I've uh, in a long career doing this, I've been to a lot of World Series games. I've been to other dramatic moments, but honestly, there that, that was the most dramatic scene I've ever been in. That Game Seven, when when Randy Johnson comes in out of the bullpen after pitching those six innings the night before, and then Mariano comes in to get a two inning save, and then the the rally. I, I've never been involved in anything like it before, and uh, the you know my my wife and I had gone to games one and two because, um, you know, Gracie was a friend and this was almost like redemption. And it was like, we got to be there. You know, this is Gracie's chance to be in a world series. The one thing I remember, and I mentioned this to Mark earlier is uh, we get over there and on Saturday morning, Mark asked us if we want to have breakfast. So we have breakfast at our hotel before he goes to the ballpark. Well, of course they win that game. So now we got to have breakfast Sunday morning as well, which we do. Yeah, I'm not superstitious. It's bad luck. No, that's that's. It was just we had to keep doing it. So when I I figured they were going to put it away in New York, but it got when they got swept. I told Jennifer, "We got to go back. We got to go back for Game Six and Seven, and we got to have breakfast." And uh, and we did both uh, Saturday and Sunday. So I take a a massive amount of credit for Gracie's performance there in the World Series. It was it was those breakfasts. Please, and (laughs) and Mark, you'll appreciate this. It was the eight o'clock games, eight o'clock games, 8 a.m., uh, 8 p.m. games. And it was breakfast with Barry Axelrod and then to the ballpark. Honestly, I was getting there at like 1030 in the morning. It was uh, it was something else. But going going back real quick to, to Gonzo's hit off of and you were asking how I was feeling in the dugout swings and bases loaded one out. I was just praying that Gonzo didn't have a Mark Grace poster day moment. Yeah. <laughs> That is so perfect. Gracie, and and, and I want to get to this, and, and it had uh, a substantial effect on you in your career because it was a representation of of who you were and what you did. You did off-field stuff, 
and you always had a golf tournament. And why I want to say this is that there were some great times and great memories. But really, to me, stepping back and being involved with that, but stepping back and seeing the representation throughout the game of baseball for your golf tournament was was spectacular. But those were fun moments. I know you're going to probably mention Rick Sutcliffe again because he was involved. <laughs> but it was an incredible moment uh, to have that opportunity every single year to go to that special golf tournament. Well, and, and you were one of the one of the many reasons why it was a special golf tournament, Mark. And and that's the thing. You look back at, at those times, and it's it's not me that made that golf tournament uh, a great golf tournament. It's all of us. You know, all of you guys that that would that would come to it. Maybe not Phil Nevin, but maybe everybody. <laughs> but uh, but but point point being, uh, you know, it was just, it was almost like if you looked around the golf course. And a lot of times I wouldn't play. I would just drive around and thank everybody for being there. And it was almost like every really good guy in the game of baseball was at that golf tournament in Arizona. And and you were one of them. And I mean, it was a hoot. It was a hoot. There wasn't much good golf play, but God, we had a good time. You know what? I think Swain's pointed out something that stuck with me, and that is most of the time you guys are so inundated with invitations and you want to do the right thing. You want to help your buddies. You want to help good causes. Uh, but this was one of those events that all the players circled on their calendar. Like, I've got to be there. I will clear everything, right, Swain's, just Definitely. to get to this event. It, it was an incredible time um, because you knew you had the baseball stories, the elements of that, but really it it was the culmination of – let's separate ourselves. Let's understand that we can go out there and play baseball, but there are causes that you want to be able to enhance. And, and Gracie did that for years. And it was, it was a representation of what we thought of what Mark Grace was, but man, yes, it was circled on our calendars. You know, uh, one of the things uh, I was involved with the tournament and it was a load of fun and for a good cause. And the people that showed up were amazing uh, we would, we on purpose scheduled it just before everybody reported to spring. So there were a lot of guys around, but it was, uh, so popular with the players that we actually had to turn guys away. We had too many celebrities that wanted to play and that's a tribute to, to Mark's participation and just the fun that that tournament became. And, and, and Barry, how, you, you ran the show. You were, you were the guy that, uh, you and a, a guy named Susan Rosner did a, did a great job for all those years. Uh, it was it was nothing but fun, nothing but a pleasure. Gracie, you wrap up your career on the field uh, in 2003 after that season, and what a tremendous run it was. And then you're faced with that question, how do I begin the next chapter of my professional life and what's next for me? And part of that included some coaching, and you go into broadcasting, and you're working with the Diamondbacks. But there are a lot of folks listening right now who are wondering – What's going on with Mark Grace in his latest step of life? And the reason I bring that up is because you're going to be doing some work with the Cubs. And right. as you pointed out earlier in the podcast, there had been some distance between you and that organization. What's changed now? Why are you going in with both feet? I uh, First of all, the, the offer kind of came out of nowhere. I wasn't expecting it. Um, but... Yeah, the offer came, and it was. And it's interesting that you asked. Did did anybody on this? Did anybody watch Bobby Knight go back to go back to uh, Bloomington, Indiana? Did anybody watch that? Mm -hmm. 
that was the first time Bobby Knight had ever been back uh, to Bloomington, Indiana. And, and you saw how he was just uh, revered and how he was, you know, the, the appreciated. And it had been almost 20 years. And I saw that and I was like, and I'm not comparing myself to Bobby Knight. He's a Hall of Famer. But I'm like, you know what? That was really cool. And it, it might be, and, and it kind of made, you know what? I may have to, I may have to take a look at this and, and reflect on just how many great years and just how great that city was to me and just how great those fans were to me. And that's what, that's what I, I, I thought about. I'm like, you know, I was, I was pissed off, but I wasn't pissed off at Cub fans. They were nothing but wonderful to me. And I was, I felt like I was nothing but wonderful to them. So I realized that once I saw the the reception that Bobby Knight got from those fans, I'm like, you know what? I think it might be time to, to, you know, turn the page on this thing. Well, mending fences is, uh, I think, something we all start to appreciate more, isn't it? Once right. we get a little bit older. Right. Well, 16 seasons, Gracie, 13 of them as a Cub, three-time All-Star, World Series championship. That's a complete novel for a lot of men. We're really, really appreciative of the time you spent with well, us today. Well, thank you very much, and I'll never write a book, so rest easy, Swains. <laughs> That's a good thing. <laughs> Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.